Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Today's episode is on the Innovation Commons, an old idea that will drive transformative innovation. Our guest is Jason Potts, the Distinguished Professors of Economics at RMIT University in Melbourne and co-director of the Blockchain Innovation Hub. He's also Chief Investigator at the ARC Center of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. Jason, welcome to Innovation Matters. In this episode, we're going to talk about the concept of the commons as applied to innovation and knowledge rather than in the way we usually do to natural resources and land. Our guest, Dr. Potts, has made similar contributions to economics and to understanding innovation based on an evolutionary perspective. He stresses and argues that what holds back innovation is access to relevant information and that the innovation commons is a system that is able to share ideas and enable cooperation around inputs, ideas and opportunities, and it should be nurtured to overcome such obstacles. This is the first of two episodes with Dr. Potts. The second one will look more closely at the theory of economic evolution and its implications. Dr. Potts, welcome to the show. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your interests and background for our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Anders. So I'm an economist. Um, I originally specialized and trained in what is called evolutionary economics. Um, and I've, over my career, I've gradually sort of taken that towards focusing on creative industries and, and recently crypto economics and blockchain. But the core thing that, I, that I've been focused on is the question of just how do economies grow? And the answer to that is innovation. So I've started calling myself an innovation economist more and more these days. Thank you. Well, Let's start with uh, what the innovation commons says. You start out with the Prometheus myth and humans getting fire. How does this story enhance our understanding of the innovation process, in particular the social and evolutionary nature of it? Yeah, so I used that that metaphor at the start of my book, um, Innovation Commons. And the, the argument I was trying to make there was to push back against the Schumpeterian sort of just dominance in terms of the way we think about the nature and causes of innovation. And Joseph Schumpeter was a, a very famous early 20th century economist, really the, the sort of companion of Keynes in the sense of the two great economists of the early 20th century. And Schumpeter's argument was that economies evolve, that, that it was gales of creative destruction and innovation that, that, that drive economic growth and evolution. Fundamentally correct. He absolutely got that right. And in his argument, what he did was he put the idea of the entrepreneur at the center of, of economics, that there was the entrepreneurial um, disruption and creativity. And that idea has really taken root. Now, there's, there's many, many things that are true about it. But the one thing that's wrong about it is the idea that it was a single entrepreneur that was doing all of the, that was the sort of prime mover of economic growth and change. And the, the argument that I, that I um, wanted to make in my book, the, the reason I started with the Promethean myth was that that idea that you know, innovation is a gift from the gods or that there's a sort of single creative genius 
that that is the beginning, the origin of all of all economic growth and change. That idea is just is 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 persistent. It is it is almost unquestioned as a in innovation thinking and policy and theory with this with this idea. So I wanted to sort of to push back about against that and suggest that what was the an alternative metaphor here wasn't that to think of innovation as this sort of creative genius process channeled into a single human being, a gift of the gods, but was actually something that humans do together. It's a it's a we get together, we kick around ideas, we we try out things, we cooperate. And through that cooperative process of human coordination, right, doing things together, we can figure stuff out. And I wanted to, to propose that there's an alternative myth that doesn't begin with this sort of heroic Schumpeterian entrepreneur as the starting point of innovation. Of course, you, you could say that Schumpeter was one of the original evolutionary economists and that he simply he didn't deliberately ignore what came before that. He, he thought it wasn't relevant to the theory. So what we're talking about now is to the extent to, to, for which it's relevant for, to the theory and also for policy interventions. Because as you note later, most of the policy interventions indeed tend to take place once there is an entrepreneur with an idea, whether it has, whether he or she has a registered company or not, we'll get back to that later. But I think that's an important aspect. But maybe you can put this just a little bit more into into context. Of course, we have um, we have the work of Ostrom, who through um, anthropological methods try to show how people organize around issues that normally would require collective action or um, maybe even some kind of law and legislation. We have the work of Hayek, of course, of Arrow and of Romer. What did they bring? What did they miss? And what, what is this idea complementing? Just a little bit broader perspective. Yeah, so the key thing about innovation theory and innovation policy is it was implicitly conceptualized as a discussion of an industrial economy. And an industrial economy is one that is organized around firms and often quite large firms. It's one where the origin of innovation is, is research and development um, and this conception of research and development taking place in corporate labs inside companies. And then the market process is the, is the process by which those ideas are diffused and distributed throughout the economy. So we have a story that is fundamentally built around this conception of industrial innovation, where the institutional parts of this are firms that, that, that organize resources and capital and skills and they put them together and innovation takes place in firms and then those firms exist in a market context so firms and markets and then governments come in when when things go wrong when we have market failure or or, or, or needs for investment and what's interesting about that story that, that's the industrial economy story and that was the story that Schumpeter was was, was speaking to when he when he when he wrote about you know, the role of entrepreneurs and that was the world he was seeing in, in terms of you know the rise of large corporate organizations driving innovation in industrial economies but what was missing in that story was the question of where did these ideas come from what was missing there was were there other institutions that could possibly perform those functions of creating ideas of distributing ideas of organizing ideas and you know, to, to a certain extent, there always was. There was networks, and we had civil society, and we had clubs, and we, had, you know, societies are rich, complex objects that have more than just firms and markets in them. But from Schumpeter's perspective, and you know, Alfred Marshall's perspective, and all of the you know, early 20th century economists looking at an industrial economy, 
the main thing they saw was firms. And, and they're absolutely right about that. That was the, the main thing that was going on there at the time. And so they focused on that. And as we developed innovation policy, um, the role of, of governments coming in and um, facilitating and helping out that process, what they were focusing on was how do we help firms in the context of markets? So we end up with you know, innovation subsidy support tax policies. We you know we, we have it basically as a branch of industry policy is coming in over the top and, and being recreated as in, innovation policy. Now in that story, the work of Eleanor Ostrom is just irrelevant. You know, what's a commons? That doesn't that's not even a thing in that story. The work of Hayek, interestingly, is also irrelevant because Hayek was really talking about the role of prices coordinating distributed information. Well, there is no distributed information in that story. It was all concentrated in firms. And even inside firms, it was concentrated in their R&D labs. So you don't have this need to understand more complex mechanisms to deal with distributed knowledge. You know, the, the idea, the fundamental thing that a firm was doing was concentrating knowledge into a single organization and then using that to scale it up and then using markets to distribute it. So we just, we, we had a... We had a very focused story that was centered around the role of firms in innovation and therefore other you know, other aspects of economic coordination, the role of you know what you know what what you know distributed knowledge is doing, the, the Hayekian concerns with planning and so on. None of those things really entered into the fundamental industrial innovation story. So that was the thing that I was really trying to understand was um, what happens when you have a richer story of economic institutions? in order to understand the innovation process, when it's not just corporate industrial firms in reasonably competitive markets, and then with the role of governments to be to pick up all of the, you know, to, to, to backstop that entire process and to come in and, and either do industrial planning over the top of it to direct innovation or to deal with market failure problems in the sense of you know, insufficient investment or other types of of ways of intervening in that industrial economy process. So, so that was the sort of the broad context there that, that the first sort of generation of innovation theory was fundamentally centered on the role of firms in markets. And the role of policy just meant what happens when that goes wrong? Or what are the bits that, where are the failures in that process that we can, we can come and intervene with? And the basic policy tools were industry policy, planning, ways of, of directing resources into firms or providing ways of supporting firms or providing new types of property rights. Intellectual property is the other sort of key thing. And that's a market. That's a that's a way of, of empowering markets to work better. So a firms and market story of, of innovation policy based upon a firms and markets theory of the nature of industrial innovation um, in an economy. Yeah, and there are also several historical and institutional elements behind that story as well. There was the rise of the administrative state under Roosevelt and especially under Wilson after the First World War. There was a general consensus about planning after the Second World War across the board, across all Western countries. In the US in particular, there was it was a phenomenon of DARPA and the immense defense spending that they created and technologies for civilian use that they uh, that they engendered, although not deliberately. We have another podcast with Professor Bon William to talk about that. And it was a context in which Keynes seemed to have won and Hayek seemed to have lost. No one really believed in, 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 in free markets anymore. They had 
been proven not to work in the popular imagination. And so this was needed to a particular point. And of course, policymakers also have their own incentives. They need something simple that they can do, something that, something that looks forceful. And that's why we see industrial policy or innovation policy playing out, playing out that way, at least in post-war era. There's been a lot of work in trying to nuance this. We, looking at it on the ground, we don't see a lot of it playing out. We still see a lot of the institutional remnants, especially in in the Eastern European countries and the post-communist and post-communist countries. So what we need to get at at some point, I think towards the end of this podcast and also in the activities that we want to do is is to get to something more concrete on how to nurture, for instance, the commons, how to have a more flexible approach to regulation and so on and so forth. So I want to ask you to define, we have to go back to, a little bit to the basic uh, concepts here to define what the commons is and uh, where we see it, a couple of examples. And what is the tragedy of the commons and why is it so important to understand it? And then we'll talk more specifically about the innovation commons. Yeah, so the commons is a type of economic institution in the same way that firms and markets are, are economic institutions. They're rules for coordinating the economic behavior to create value. So, so industrial economics makes extensive use of firms and markets and, and also governments. It doesn't really make much use of commons and clubs or other sort of ways of basically private orders is, is what they are. They're, they're groups of people come together to create certain rules to govern a common pool resource. So a common pool, you know, commons are very old forms of economic coordination or institutions. Um, the way a lot of common pool resources, such as a forest or a fisheries or, or you know, grazing pasture, was a, it's a resource in the sense that it's valuable to a group of people, but it's a common pool resource in the sense that it's available to the use of a group of people. Um, but it's not a public good. It's not open to anyone. There are rules. There are there are there is governance about how you access it. What what the what the rules are, and the Eleanor Ostrom called that, and, and as, as did Oliver Williamson, a private order as opposed to a public order. So if you think governments provide public order, they law and legislation and um, and you know and, and government services, whereas a commons is a private order. It's a voluntary group. A voluntary community comes together and creates rules to create a and manage the use of a, of a resource. So most of the commons that, we're, that, that people might think of are usually physical commons, as I said, you know, instances of, of, of natural resources that are, that are collectively accessed. But increasingly, we're starting to see a world where many of the new types of commons are knowledge commons or information commons. You know, the, the open internet, um, Wikipedia, these, these types of things are types of, of, of commons type things where um, it's a collective resource. It's a common pool resource. It's available to be used and accessed by many people. It's a created resource where we're building and creating and producing in the commons and not just consuming from the commons. So a commons institution is not just a place to consume. It's also a place to produce. And previously, you know, a lot of commons worked quite well in small scale communities where everyone known, knew each other and trusted each other. The challenge has always been that commons don't tend to scale very well. Um, whereas governments do, or uh, or markets do. So other types of economic institutions, you know, they have their costs to use them, transactions costs. And commons can be very, very effective for some types of resources, but traditionally haven't scaled very well. So the, the question that I was interested in was, 
can we use the commons for innovation? We know we can use firms for innovation, that's R&D production and so on in a firm. We know markets we can use for innovation, they, those firms exist within markets and we can create new types of property rights, intellectual property. But what happens when we try and do innovation in the common? Can that happen? When does that happen? And the answer that I sort of came to was that the missing part of the Schumpeterian industrial innovation story was that the commons as a an institution, you know, as an institution, a set of rules that a group of people come together and create and, and develop in order to create or use a resource is fundamental in, at the very, very beginning of the innovation process. And there's a reason for that, is that a commons is a an institution that works very, very well under uncertainty. And when you don't quite know what the resource is, what you're building, who's going to use it in what way, a commons is a very, very flat institution that, that enables many people to participate in it, often without expectation of what they're getting out of it. It's just a, a rule, you know, a set of rules for, for creating and using a resource. And at the very, very early stage of innovation, what the resource that you're trying to create is we have a new technology or a new capability, like a new technology enters in the world. That's an invention. But innovation is not the same as invention. Innovation is what can we do with that that is economically valuable? What can we find in, in that invention or that new transformative power in the universe, a, you know, a formula or a, a, you know, a discovery of some kind of power in the, in the world, an, you know, an invention? But what economic value can we create with that? And that was also that was a point that Schumpeter that was a that was a Schumpeterian insight as well. It was a fundamental distinction between invention and innovation. And Schumpeter identified the entrepreneur with the, the you know the agency that was creating that distinction. So the argument that I made, and I went back and looked at this in history and just tried to find lots of examples, and they were just everywhere, was that in the very, very early stage of any new technology, and this could be you know, the invention of steam power or the invention of computing or the invention of electricity or the invention of cryptocurrencies or whatever, right? Just, just any, any new invention. The fundamental economic question is, how do we create value with this? Who is this valuable to? Now, venture capitalists will call that product market fit, but it's a question that the entrepreneur has to answer. And you are not an entrepreneur until you've answered that question. I see this technology, this knowledge, this capability, and I think it will be of economic value if we do this with it. And that if we do this might be we sell it to these people in this way, in these places, it's this color. There's a whole series of very specific things that are information. And the fundamental resource in an innovation commons is all the information and knowledge and experiments and mistakes and and insights into into you know into preferences and costs in order for an entrepreneur to figure out how to create value with something and that's an innovation commons thank you very much i mean several things come to mind first one of the things that we are really struggling with here is to reiterate Schumpeterian point about the difference between invention and, and innovation. We see a lot of focus on specific technologies and, uh, and even specific sectors and not by far enough on different ideas for using that te technology well. And that brings me to the question of the governance of the commons, especially in terms of incentivization of different different participants. We talked, I think you mentioned uh, law and legislation. There's of course the difference 
there that I'd like you to talk about as well. So if you could say that laws are basically the norms, the things that we don't do that are not necessarily written down. That's what Alström is talking about. And legislation mm -hmm. is what is actually written down. She talks about the lighthouse. I see it everywhere. I see it when uh, I get on the train here in Switzerland. And I just lightly, you know, touched my foot. I didn't put it on the other seat. I just rested it a little bit on the armrest and it was completely free. And a lady uh, of about 60 years old, and they are responsible for norm enforcement in Switzerland. It is their official task. Uh, <laughs> she started yelling at me in uh, Swiss German. And I, I speak German. I didn't understand a word of it, but she was angry. So, and I, of course, was ashamed. And my point is, it doesn't even, it doesn't matter if, if, the, if there was a law against it, I'm not going to do it. People just don't do it. Otherwise, you will have these angry ladies swooping down on you. You see several, several examples like that that sort of emerge. So talk a bit about what governance in this broader sense of the commons of the commons look like, and especially what are the mechanisms that incentivize different sectors to share information that they might have a benefit from keeping to themselves. Yeah, so I think this is this is one of these ideas that it's a theoretical insight that seems that seems simple on on the surface, but I think it's actually quite profound once we think it through in terms of what does this mean for how we do innovation policy, and the basic insight here is that the origin of innovation isn't coming from a public order, you know, governments providing a condition. It's coming from society. It's coming from culture, and what culture and society is doing here is providing governance, providing the rules and the norms that make it safe to pool and share information. And that, that, you know, that's what we call an innovation commons. Sometimes that innovation commons is almost entirely embedded in a culture. Um, this is a, you know, a culture of sharing or pooling of information. An example of that is a university. There's a, my basic theory is that the reason universities are often so associated with innovation is not because they produce knowledge, it's because they produce innovation commons. They make it safe to pull and share crazy ideas and just try and find interesting things in them. And they also produce patents and, and, and so on um, as, a, as a side effect. Another one is cities. Some, some we tend to, it's, I think it's not an accident that um, to a first approximation, almost all innovation comes out of cities. What are cities when they're functioning well is that they're governance institutions to enable people to come together and pool and share ideas. And a lot of the ideas that have come out of you know, regional geography and innovation geography and the, you know, the, the various clusters and all of those types of things, my basic theory is I think they're catching, they're right, but they're wrong. They're, they're correct in identifying that it was cities or a culture that, that produced that or universities or look at the cluster around those Silicon Valley or Stanford or, or whatever it is or Cambridge. But the reason why it is those places is that those places are very fecund, effective innovation commons. And what's, what's happening in those places is that a group of people are coming together and pulling experiments and ideas and practices about a new technology that they've discovered. And the, the interesting thing about the, one of the key differences between an innovation commons and industrial innovations and research labs is that industrial innovation research labs, it's all professionals. Everyone is there, is a professional, they're employed to do the thing, they're specialists. Innovation commons 
tend to be amateurs, hackers, hobbyists, enthusiasts, people that are just, they just like a technology and they're wanting to play with it. And they're, they want to play with it with it, their friends or other people who are interested in that. And that that's a key part of the cultural difference is, is that what you, whenever we find right at the very, very beginning of any new technology, before anyone's even figured out what this is useful for, how you make money out of it, before that happens, what we tend to see is just a lot of playing with an idea, kicking it around, what happens when we do this, if, where can I get some some of this from, just trying to answer basic questions of who cares about this, who, what can we possibly use this for, um, if we use it for this, what laws are we breaking, if we try and build this, where can we find some supply of this thing, so a lot of these questions are market questions, they're questions about cost and preferences and taste and um, legality and, and barriers and so on, but when you put that all together, what you've got is, all right, I can see how we can make this. We can get it from there. If we do that, we're breaking these laws, but we'll do it this way. These are the people who seem to be really passionate about wanting to, to use this thing. And whether that's you know early computers or software or some weird new sport that's just been invented or a new metal that we can has this is super soft or hard or dark or, or, or whatever, and I wonder what we can use this for. But the point is, is that new technologies don't arrive fully labeled. They arrive as a capability. Now we can do this. And that's, you know, that's technology. That's not innovation. Or that's, you know, that's engineering. That's not yet economic value has not been created yet. Economic value gets created when we figure out what economic value can be created for whom, how that's done. And often that is incredibly specific. It will be, you know, we'll use, we'll make it in this way and not that way. And we make it in this country or, or this part there and not there. We sell it to these people, but not those ones. And all of that has to be experimentally discovered. And those experiments are costly. You know, there's a there's a and one way to dramatically lower the costs of those and just figuring that out, most of which is information. That information needs to be gathered. Um, one way to dramatically lower the cost of figuring that out, figuring out how can we create economic value by innovation, is to create a common pool resource. And that resource is a whole bunch of people who have just are enthusiastic and excited about the prospects of this new technology, just sharing everything that they, they, they know and learned. Now, that's what I've called an innovation commons. It's distinct from entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is what happens the moment that you've that you can look into that pool of information and say, you know, and have the Schumpeterian moment, the aha, I see what I can do with that. At that point, now we're all right, start a firm, get some finance into, you know, build a prototype off to market. But then the Schumpeterian story begins. But up until that point, all we've got is a, a, a technology, a capability in the universe, you know, some new knowledge. But we don't yet have the all of the inputs into innovation to try and um, create economic value. And what my argument is, is that you could do that in a firm, if a firm was big enough and rich enough and 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 diverse enough and probably culturally weird enough. So you know, things like Google, in a sense, is kind of an innovation commons. Or you could do it in a fantastic city that was just a great location of people sharing and pooling ideas. So Vienna in the late 19th century or Silicon Valley in the 80s and so on. You know, there have been places and cities that have had that property. Or great universities where just everyone feels safe and is brilliant and is sharing ideas and so on. So you know, there's definitely other institutions where we can do that. But an innovation commons is just the sort of general name I'm giving to that that set of mechanisms that enables you to create a resource. And from that resource, we get the inputs into entrepreneurship and innovation.
Well, thank you. If you allow me to to summarize a little bit in my own way, we, we already see something like innovation commons in what we typically think of agglomeration effects or trust-based communities. You mentioned uh, you mentioned universities and some kinds of clusters, normally bottom-up clusters. And we, all, we already see it in some companies. Amazon, for instance, I listened to an interview with Jeff Bezos, who said that if a junior person comes up with a new idea, it automatically, if if it's not vetoed by everyone at the lower level, it automatically goes up to the higher level and so on and so forth. So there's a much higher chance of a good idea or a bad idea to reach to reach top management. And Google, of course, is investing its rents in all kinds of crazy ideas knowing that many of them are not mm. going to turn out and also i think personally perfectly aware that the rents that they have right now are are going to, are going to be limited one they're going to be supplanted one way or another probably not by regular regulatory interference that might actually entrench their position but by some other way that we don't know yet so the question then is how do we scale this up and make this more systematic beyond trust-based communities, beyond companies, beyond fiscal agglomeration effects. And there are some things happening. We talk a lot about open source peer production. Uh, some of it is also ideologically based, but then also turns into commercial ventures. And you talk about a couple of examples such as clunkers and homebrew and the Republic of Letters, which I don't remember what it was right now, but maybe you can talk about some steps in the right direction that are going on as we speak. Yeah, so innovation commons have always been with us. Um, as long as we've had new technologies and new ideas, we've had innovation commons where groups of people have come together to, to explore those ideas and pool and you know to create a common pool resource to see what can we do with this, what what value is this. The sort of the ones that began the industrial revolution were things like the Republic of Letters, which was a group of scholars throughout Europe who were you know, basically inventing science and they were communicating with each other in Latin. And there were, you know, there were rules that every time you come up with a new idea, you had to share it with everyone else in the network. But they were they were networks for pooling and sharing information. And one of the, you know, the, the governance rules that came out of that were things like attribution and priority. And, you know, there were, you know that's the, the invention of modern science was, was that, um, which was an innovation commons. We've seen innovation commons emerge at the beginning of almost every industry where you go right back to the very beginning. What you've got is a group of people playing around with an idea of what can we do with this or this this new capability. It might be a, a new seed variety or a new, a new sort of um, technical capability. And the question is, what value can we find in this? So one way to do that is just to be brilliant, the sort of Sean Paterian sort of genius that just 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 has that insight. But the, the way in which this happens in practice you know, everywhere is you just make use of, of other people. And this is the this is the idea that that is central to the understanding of market mechanisms is that market mechanisms are a distributed tech, a technology to enable distributed knowledge to work to, 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 to work well, to be coordinated. Innovation Commons do the same thing. They're they're a an institutional space that enables lots of distributed information about a technology um, and its experiments, its uses, its applications, its problems, its whatever, to be pulled together to, to create that. Now, in the past, the main barrier to that was, okay, maybe we need to get people all in the same place. And that's what, what a city or a university or an innovation cluster is. 
the Republic of Letters, what they needed was postal mechanisms, right? They needed to, to write, you know, it's right there in the title, the, the letters of Republic of Letters were the letters that they would send each other um, to communicate that. So you need effective communications technology or clustering technology or just some way to enable all of that information to, um, to dramatically lower the cost of pooling and sharing information. Um, and, you know, that was the industrial revolution was, was and the, you know, industrial economies have, have thrived with that. The big thing that's happened in the world is the internet and, and, and digital technologies. And, you know, we think we, you know, information and communications technologies. And we, we think of that as a, you know, as a communications technology for sending messages, but it's also the basis for a fundamental revolution in the way in which innovation works by if it can be made open. And this is where open is such an important idea in, in innovation. You know, open science, open source software, open all of these different open things. The challenge of open is that it doesn't, you know, it's it's one of these things that it's confused economists. It shouldn't work. There should be distinct property rights, or we should have clear ownership of things, or, or and so on. Whereas the the whole philosophy of open is to enable the pooling and sharing or to, to enable other people to use the thing that you've got. Now that works spectacularly well when the thing that you've got is a non-rival good, when it is, you know, when it is information or data or, or knowledge that if I have it and you have it as well, I've still got it. It's, it's non-rivalrous. Now, non-rivalrous things, you know, anything that's made of information or data or, or anything that is digital works spectacularly well from the perspective of open, because what it enables you to do is to enable communities to form around it. By making my technology or my resource open, I enable a community to form around it very cheaply and easily. And if I enable a community to form around it cheaply and easily, what I've got now is a commons. I've got a group of other people who can experiment. I can outsource my experimentation into that new technology. I can enable other people to do it. And if the rules of open are anything you find you have to put back into the commons, then what we've got is a spectacular institution for innovation in the sense of discovery, of, of just trial and error, of experimentation, of pooling resources. And this isn't inconsistent with firms and markets and, and so on. It's, it's In fact, it's completely consistent with them. It's just a very powerful institution at the beginning and the early stages when uncertainty is very high, when you don't know what the value of a thing is yet, or you don't know what specific business model or strategies that you're going to use to, to develop this into an innovation. When all of that is just still fundamentally uncertain, what you want is to, to have the maximum amount of experimentation and trial and error and discovery um, around that. That condition is the perfect condition for entrepreneurship to take place. And they, you know, so, so that's why innovation commons are a very powerful institution. Generally, they are a doubly, triply powerful institution in a digital context because digital enables open to work better. Open enables, you know, has that sort of feedback effect on innovation. So I, you know, so I think um, what this looks like to me then is that We've had thousands of years of, of not much innovation at all in, long, in economic growth. Then this rapid uptick a few hundred years ago when we got industrial when we got industrial innovation. Now we've got digital innovation, and digital innovation is massively more powerful precisely because of, of its ability to harness commons as a as a, an environment for exploring the sources of to create a resource for entrepreneurs to thrive in. 
So tell us a little bit about, uh, you, you talk in your book about all of the kinds of information and resources that would be extremely valuable for potential entrepreneurs in the commons, both in terms of the needs and incentives that entrepreneurs need, the information that they need, uh, the market information that they need and other resources. Could you tell us a, a bit about what are the kinds of things that would be extremely useful to have in, to have in the commons? Yeah. So the way in which industrial innovation has has formed as policy is that it's identified the key resources you know, for innovation as as technology, as as these ideas, recipes that can be patented and and so on. And those those you know technical instructions for making things, you know, a, a key resource um, for innovation. They're they're you know, technology. But there's other types of information and knowledge that are also important as inputs. So it's it's not it's not it's not just that the universe of technology is the universe of relevant knowledge that we need as input into into innovation, but we also need information about costs. So this is prices. We need information about sources of supply. Where do I find things? We need information about preferences and market demand. Who wants this and why do they want it and so on? We need information about the regulatory environment, um, which laws am I breaking if I do this new thing? And almost all new technologies run into regulatory barriers or, or, or um, problems around that. Now, those regulatory costs, prices, um, information, where to find stuff, where do I find skills? All of that information is also fundamentally needed by an entrepreneur. I, I need to know the answer to all of those things, as well as what do I do? You know, how do I find this new technology? What is the technological capability? Now, the problem is that I can use intellectual property. I can create a market system for one of those things, technologies, patents, but I can't create a market property right around price information, almost by definition, right? That's information. I, it's very, very difficult to create property rights around information around where do I find some useful skills or some skilled people or you know a lot of that information exists perhaps um, in experience or it exists in lawyers or accountants or it exists in other professionals so I can buy it on the market but I need to find that information and what a commons is is just a way of creating a context where that information I know where to go to find it it's I'm reducing the transactions costs and discovery costs and search costs of gathering all of those resources. And almost all of these resources are information resources and knowledge resources. And that that ability to do that, I think that's that's something that a community can come together and create or an innovation commons can can create. Governments can also do this as well. Um, And when they fund universities, for instance, or when they fund sort of network accelerators or other things, often they whether deliberately or accidentally end up creating those types of environments. But what the point of this is, is that what you're trying to solve, what innovation policy is trying to solve is what is the lowest cost institution to create all of the resources and inputs we need for innovation that an entrepreneur would need to figure out what how to create value. And sometimes you know, a, a corporate hierarchic, large firm, industrial firm is the correct answer to that question. Other times we need effective property rights around information and ideas, intellectual property, and we need to create markets and you know, markets and technology. Other times, and the, the newer and the newer a technology is, the more we the more we need that. We also need information around what are all of the possible uses of this? What can go wrong? What are the things we can do with this? Just the types of information that you only get 
through trial and error experimentation. And that's why often the very, very early stages of a technology is dominated by you know, enthusiasts, hobbyists, hackers, just people playing around with it. It's not, it's not yet the professionals that have come into that space. Now, what does that mean for an innovation policy perspective? Well, two things. One, we need to find ways of enabling all of the information that exists in a society or an economy to be part of that innovation process, not just the bit that's that's trapped inside firms or, or narrow sectors. So this is this is creating infrastructure and institutions to, to bring distributed information and focus it on you know, innovation problem solving. But the other thing is to focus on the ways in which that process can go wrong. And the main way that that process goes wrong is just the cost of information of discovery of opportunities goes up. So rather than thinking of this, how do we subsidize and support the process of innovation that's already started? What we really want to be trying to do is to maximize the chance that it gets started in the first place. And that's that's what sort of innovation commons thinking um, is about when focused on innovation policy. Thank you. And and now, of course, we're, we're already heading into the policy implications here. So just to get my own example from my own personal experience, I sometimes think of entrepreneurial ideas, but I have a job. I'm not, I'm not an entrepreneur. If I had the slightest incentive to write that down, I would. One example is I did session on a platform economy and uh, one of my sister uh, departments is working on food waste. I was a little bit skeptical because I thought prices should be able, price incentives should be able to handle it. If there's something along the supply chains, there's already an incentive there. What's the need for public action here? I was a bit skeptical. Then I was really impressed by the company and they told me what they did and how they managed to overcome network externalities. Of course, they couldn't get data automatically. They had to set it up and reach a critical mass themselves and enormous investments. Enorm enormously engaged, and they just sort of got to that point. And we started discussing discussing in the panel. And I told them, listen, when my partner is gone and I'm driving home from work, I don't want to cook myself. I also don't want to go and spend 30 or $40 in a restaurant. What I want to do is to uh, have an app, to tell the app that I'm hungry. And then for all the restaurants along the way to, to see that I'm hungry, and to uh, to say, listen, we have an extra meal. We'll give it to you half price. You can, and they'll see when uh, when I'm going to be there, and I can pick it up. Helps everyone, and the trust is already there. It's uh, it's it's automatically calculated, and now they're trying to put this into practice. How can we incentivize things like this to happen at at a much larger scale for consumers to? To, to tell them about what they're frustrated, what they're frustrated about and what they what they need. How can we sort of what kind of policies or what kind of systems uh, with sufficient flexibility could help us create a, an expanded rather than a haphazard commons? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a it's the hard question. So the way that I've been thinking about this is that the way in which innovation, industrial innovation policy works in, in that context is that um, you start with a world of someone comes up with a good idea and then you support them. So it's a, you, you try and figure out ways to, to, to find people with good ideas, companies with good ideas and, and, and drop money to, to scale them up. And you know, for a long time that, that 
worked pretty well. But the, the situation that you just described, the, the entrepreneurial idea that you just came up with, if you pitch that idea, so first of all, there's the question of, of you know, can I find someone else to, to work with on this? Or, you know, so there's a, there's a matching issue there as well. But at some point, you'll come up against maybe data privacy laws or you'll come up against something that just that make, that makes that that um, that you, you run into some challenges of prototyping or building that new technology. And the way in which I think innovation policy needs to shift or the, the, in terms of just you know, fundamentally thinking about what is the role of government here is not so much how do we support good ideas because everyone wants to support good ideas. This entire industry of venture capital that's just devoted to nothing but finding and supporting good ideas. Um, governments can also do that. They tend to not do it very well because, again, lots of other people are trying to do that. But what governments can do well is try and clear the way of bad ideas or, 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 or things that are stopping and blocking a new thing. And many of those blockages, you know, some of them could be not enough finance or not enough skills and so on that you can support that. But a lot of them will be a weird regulation that makes it illegal to do that thing in the city or somewhere else. So a lot of new digital platform ideas, um, and I think Uber and, and Airbnb and so on, when they first came along, the basic problem was that they were all illegal. And they were illegal in ways that was never quite clear the, this precise way in which they're illegal. You know, and sometimes it was data privacy things. Sometimes it was, you know, the, it was a, a, a labor law thing. And other times they just didn't fit into a particular regulatory box. And the idea and but they also had enemies. They also had clear companies that just did not want them to succeed and had a very strong and vested interests in that. And this notion of seeing government, the role of, of innovation policy as fighting against the fighting against the enemies of innovation rather than supporting the friends of innovation. And here, enemies of innovation just means anything that stands in the way of trying out a new idea. Now, whether that idea is Lots of ideas are bad. Sometimes we need to experiment with them on a small scale to find out whether that's true or not, or to find out what the problems are. But fundamentally seeing the role of innovation policy as a making it safe to create new ideas or experiment with new ideas. Um, now, you know, an innovation commons is a space that is safe to pull and share information. The role of innovation policy has traditionally been to deal with market failures, where those were usually identified with not enough finance or sort of problems associated with scaling an idea up, as opposed to initial experimentation of, if I try and build this, what happens? If we try and use this this app, what what are the what are the problems and barriers and things that we'll run into when we do that? How can we find those? How can we get that, that all that information? So I think this this framework of innovation policy is about clearing the ground in front of is is is, is one one big space. Um, the other one I'd point to is the role of, of data commons or the, the role of creating, there's a lot of resources that we can safely put in or that, that's, that would, we would benefit from being able to put into the commons. So data, um, just information about, you know, often information that's come from um, purchases or, or just data exhaust, being able to put that information into a commons where other people can explore it and use it and, 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 and uh, try and find value in that. Those are the, again, the types of resources that what we actually need is public policy to, it's not, we don't need public policy to, to do that. What we need public policy is to take away the barriers to that. And whether those are around risk of 
being sued or other sort of legislative barriers or the need to support maintenance of, of that, um, again, other sort of other issues around creating a common pool resource. So there's, there's lots of there's lots of different roles where public policy can step in to help in this context. But what what the purpose of the help is to do is to either create resources that are inputs into innovation, information, or to create environments in which it is safe to experiment and generate new information about the possibilities and usefulnesses, the usefulness of, of, of new technologies. Thank you. In fact, we have uh, one of our scheduled podcasts coming up is with Adam Thierer from George Mason University, who, uh, first of all, would agree completely with you, but especially point out that the, the reason that we see so much dynamism in digital technologies and other new technologies is because of the, the ultra-liberal take in the, I think it was 1994 Telecommunications Act, and especially Section 230, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, which relieved the online providers of, of liability from third-party postings. Um, just a final question before we, um, before we close, returning back to this idea of all of the ideas that we have, all of the, the need, all of the things that we wish we could have. We already have some momentum around something called crowdsourcing that we use for small financial equity contributions at the moment or loans. Could we imagine something similar to crowdsourcing for ideas? So if I uh, if I could you know just get a tiny tiny part of the equity of uh, of a company that picks up on my ideas and make a profit, I would write them down whenever they come to mind. I wouldn't really expect much, but I'd have a a small incentive and of course the satisfaction of of of, of helping someone, and maybe it's more or less like the lottery, the chance of making some money from it. That wouldn't be the driving force, but we need a little bit more of an incentive for people to do this on a large scale. And I think that would be very useful. Can we imagine something like that? I can indeed, and I think it's already here. This is what blockchain is. So the the, the great significance of blockchain from an innovation perspective, of, of smart contracts and, 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 and tokenized assets, is that it dramatically lowers the cost of just keeping track of who did what when. So I have an idea, I can... I can record it on a blockchain in such a way that anyone can see that I had that idea at that particular point in time. So it's you know it's kind of a, a private order version of, of 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 intellectual property, but with smart contracts in that, I can very easily make payments work through that system. I can have sort of almost arbitrary complexity and 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 ownership, and enable. You know, a whole group of people, to, you know, a commons is a group of people coming together to create a common pool resource. What a blockchain and smart contracts enable us to do is to build that with what's called a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And that's basically a group of people coming together and collectively jointly owning something. Now, that something can be some set of ideas, it can be digital information, it can be whatever we can tokenize and turn into a digital asset. So I think this, this convergence of new types of digital property with new types of ways to insert markets into things with 
this ability to to basically create collective ownership and governance, which is you know, fundamentally what a what a commons is, is already here with with DAO. So um, you know, so we need we need new ways to experiment with those. Now, that technology already exists. This is a new technology. The question is, how what can we use it for? The main barrier to innovation, and the way that you just described that there, is actually corporate legislation and regulation around what is a DAO, so, or, or, or financial regulation around how do we treat these digital assets. Now, we don't normally think of that as innovation policy, but that, that type of um, legislative treatment of new types of digital assets and the way in which they interact with the financial system is right now the absolute frontiers of innovation policy. And a lot of the way in which you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchains are just the, you know, the latest new, new technology that we're trying to figure out what to do with. And the main barrier there isn't getting finance to it. It's not skills. It's not any of the standard innovation policy levers and, and, and dials. It's almost entirely regulatory. And the regulatory barrier is just that most of it is currently illegal for reasons that have a lot to do with you know, the, the way in which we currently define the financial sector or you know, other sort of other regulations that are there for good reasons in, in, in a previous generation of technologies. And the question is how to update those, how to, how to um, you know, it's very difficult to have a clean slate in, in that context, which is why, and the Estonia example you, you gave is so interesting because they they started with a clean slate and that's almost impossible to do to actually have a an industry or a technology that that starts from a perspective of you know there are no laws what are the correct laws let's put them in place usually the the challenge is which are the laws that are standing in the way that we need to remove or modify or reinterpret um, through the court systems or through the parliamentary systems now those are hard things to do um, they are hard and difficult and you know um, to to get right or even to know what success looks like. Um, so you know, in this sense, I think innovation policy is getting harder um, because it's it's going into more complex areas where what it is doing is trying to to un unpick very, very complex institutions that have built up over hundreds of years and enable them to function. So um, what is a commons? A commons is a space where you where you start that process. Um, and I think that's the, you know, just appreciating the significance of innovation commons in the way in which innovation works is that the fundamental challenge is just trying to figure out in the beginning, how do we take this new piece of knowledge, this new technology and create value from it? And the first point to realize is that A, that's hard because there's a lot of information that you also need, but B, that usually is also hard because you immediately run into problems such as you know, a bunch of things being um, very difficult to you know to experiment with or to or, to, or to, to try it. So that that new function of innovation policy is kind of clearing the way and making it safe to experiment is I think the future of innovation policy. Thank you, Jason. I think that's a good point to end on. On the one hand, uh, we put something, we put an idea or several ideas in the innovation commons, uh, including using using blockchains to to crowdsource ideas and so not only money. And uh, we reiterated uh, the point that we need to look at the extent to which regulation and also also the assumptions and licensing put barriers to innovation that have nothing to do with uh, with their original purpose and that's something that's important to discuss also among other innovation agencies in our new network so thank you dr potts for coming on the podcast we look forward to seeing you again thank you my pleasure